Greetings again, everyone. A couple of uh, things I wanted to mention, one of which is both bad news and good news in a way. Uh, Mr. Will Squires died, I believe, yesterday after everyone thought he was going to be just fine. Uh, Mrs. Squires, the former Neva Compton, had called my wife yesterday evening, late I believe it was, and said that he was out of intensive care and had been a little bit better. And all of his children had been up there, he'd been visiting with the family and so on, and he had, uh, I don't think it was congestive heart failure, but just heart failure, and uh, there was a pneumonia problem and the kidneys were giving out, and as often is true, when a person is quite elderly and does have one serious disease, it sort of accumulates and one difficulty comes along atop another one. And it has so often happened that way when they feel they're out of the woods and all the troubles are over and they took him out of intensive care and put him in a private room where he could visit with his family and everything. He went to sleep and simply didn't wake up, died peaceably in his sleep. So Mr. Will Squires died, I believe, yesterday or late last night sometime, last night, and Mrs. Squires called our home this morning. For those of you who might want to send flowers or a card or a letter, whatever, uh, he will be... Do you know when the funeral is, Cheryl? Monday. Funeral is Monday, and it's in the Beasley Wood, B-E-A-S-L-Y, Wood, two names, funeral home, <coughs> funeral home in Mena, Arkansas, M-E-N-A, Mena, Arkansas. I guess that's all the address you would need in case anyone wants to remember uh, Mrs. Squires. I don't know if she'll be coming back down here or not, but I would suspect she probably will. She didn't, of course, have that on her mind or talking to my wife about that one way or the other. Mr. Dart is over in the uh, Fort Worth church today, visiting over there, and very shortly is going to begin a rather extensive church visit clear up into the uh, north, I think, eastern area of the country, up toward Detroit, Chicago. I'm not sure what his entire itinerary is just yet, but it was announced in a ministerial bulletin. We have about, oh, I guess two-thirds of the main articles written for the next newspaper and one or two yet to go, and that should be going to the typesetter very shortly. We hope it is a very, very good issue. I'm still behind about two articles. I've done a couple, but I've got a couple more to go. And we were, unfortunately, prevented from doing the television programs I wanted to do this week because of some electronic glitches or whatever those are that got into their cameras. So I spent the better part of the mid-morning and part of the noon hour sitting down there waiting for them to try to get their cameras working again, which they never did. It's going to make us very close, but we still, I don't believe, will have to repeat anything, and uh, we'll be right on schedule again next week after the day of Thanksgiving. What was it you wanted me to comment about the, the thing here? Uh, this has been, I guess, in a closet for about three years or four. There were two of those that were made by a gentleman. I don't even know if he's still alive now or not, up in Arkansas, one of the members of the church who had quite a very good woodcarver, and he had seen the original shield of the church that is on the corporate seal, and he wanted to do something for the podium, and he produced two of those. I don't know where the other one is. I think we used one of them for the Feast of Tabernacles on one occasion a few years ago. This gentleman did the one which is on the podium in the Pasadena Auditorium, and in that one, he used something like 20 different kinds of hardwoods from Africa and the Philippines and all around the United States, and I don't know the full story of all the different woods that are in this one, but it really did quite a, a marvelous job if you look carefully at the little swords and so on that are there. I took the big shield down. It was uh, in the hallway, I think, of the other building or in the uh, little lobby that we have there, and we took it down, but it makes a nice decorative piece for the podium in any event. 
I was very intrigued by what happened shortly after the death of Brezhnev. I hope all of you have read about that, and I won't bother trying to preach about it up here, but certainly Newsweek and Time magazine have been filled with some very interesting articles, and the parallels in some of that are, are absolutely inescapable. There were a couple of very funny things, and it does give you a little bit of insight into the attitude of the average Russian on the street in the Soviet Union when you hear that they, just like Americans, do sometimes impugn or ridicule their leadership. Uh, we tend to be a little bit brainwashed about the Soviet Union or about China, and I think we tend to think of those people as automatons who would not dare lift any voice of dissent and who are totally brainwashed by their government, and all of them are like so many nice, neat little yellow pencils lined up in a box. They all believe the same thing. There is total loyalty and total dedication to the Russian or the communist cause. That isn't quite true. They tell the story in Moscow that when Brezhnev finally died, he went before St. Peter, and St. Peter was wondering, uh, you know, he was wondering whether or not he was going to let him in. And they told the story about the fact that, well, we were expecting you three years ago, and you would have been here three years ago, except for that made-in-America heart pacer you were wearing. And they told that in the Soviet Union. It was rather ironic to them as a commentary on Soviet technology, and they lagged very far behind us in that field, that their Soviet boss was kept alive for about three years by a heart pacer made in the United States, and that if he'd relied upon Soviet technology, he'd have been wherever it was he was going to go. Maybe it wasn't St. Peter they were talking about, I don't know, a long time ago. This was a story they circulated around in the streets, too. Brezhnev was known to have had a speech defect. He didn't speak very good Russian. In the last years of his life, his home and his dacha on the outskirts of Moscow were made into a veritable hospital. Wherever he went, either on his private aircraft or his limousine, he had bottles of oxygen and doctors with him full time. He had dubbed or appointed a man who was his favorite named Chernenko as the one that he hoped would succeed him, but as I've said for many years now, and it is a truism, it's simply axiomatic, that dictators do not groom successors. And because of the way the Politburo is set up, the Supreme Soviet, it's like a committee, but unfortunately, like any other attempt at man-made government that we'll be talking about a little later on, it is filled with all sorts of flaws, and there are party spirits, and there are various strong leaders who are constantly vying for position and who are ready to jerk the rug out from under someone else in power or stab him in the back or curry favor with those in powerful positions. So when you read the many, many articles, some of them quite incisive, and I'm amazed at the degree of awareness in the secondary or tertiary or quaternary or whatever level of Soviet politics that is known in the West, particularly by British intelligence. And some of these Soviet watchers know the actors on the scene in the Soviet Union very, very well indeed. And so they have chronicled the entire life and the history of the man now who is in, who is Yuri Andropov, who is the new party boss, and no doubt will move very rapidly, as some of the articles are saying, to put his guys in key positions and to get Chernenko's and, of course, Brezhnev's guys out of those key positions. Now, if that reminds you of anything, it's not my fault. I'm just telling you of what happens in human governments, governments that are ridden with ego, with jealousy, with spite, with uh, narcissism, with a, a lust for power and for money and for importance, and that these are the passions that rage in the breasts of people who want to be on top of the heap. 
And some of the articles, I had to underline certain segments of them and just read the underlines to some people because it was absolutely fascinating. One of the humorous stories they told, of course, you're familiar with the Olympics insignia, you know, of the three length circles. Apparently, Brezhnev was uh, going to address about 80,000 people in a huge sports palladium there in the Soviet Union at the beginning of the 1980 Olympics. And they handed him his prepared speech. And as the story went, it isn't true, it's a joke. But as the story went on the streets of Moscow, he adjusted his glasses and he began to read, Oh, oh, oh. And someone next to him says, you know, Your Honor, uh, that's the Olympic insignia. It's not part of the prepared text. So I thought that was kind of funny. But it shows that, believe it or not, some of the Russians have got a sense of humor, you know, even about their leaders, which is rather surprising, you know, when you read that, because you tend to think that they uh, they wouldn't dare pass around a story like that about their leader who is now dead. There is a scripture in the Bible that really puzzles me a little bit, and that is found in the 17th chapter of Revelation. I say it puzzles me. It doesn't anymore, but it's just one of these things that is difficult to understand at first. It says in verse 14, these, that's referring to these ten nations, shall make war with the Lamb. Now, you know, I have seen some of the science fiction movies, very, very few of them. I have been to maybe three movies since I moved to Tyler nearly five years ago, but uh, before that, probably three or four movies in the preceding ten years. But, I mean, way, way back when, I guess the original old version of King Kong, I probably saw that. I have not seen any of the Star Wars or any of the Omen or Sybil or The Exorcist or E.T. or dozens and hundreds of movies have come and, come and gone that I know absolutely nothing about. Uh, eventually, they get to television. I may see the abbreviated version of one or two or three of those that they are palatable for television audiences. But if you recall in the original scene, King Kong, the huge gorilla, is so big that he literally could not be carried aboard 16 QE2s from West Togoland to the East Coast. He is so big that with one step he will squash the Chrysler building. And I think in the original scene, he is sort of draped around the Empire State Building, grabbing fighter aircraft and hurling them like darts at other fighter aircraft. So the scene will show huge Long Tom cannon in absolute futility, unleashing barrages of 8 or 10 or 15 inch shells that are exploding harmlessly on the chest of this giant gorilla. And I look at this scene and I'm, I'm seeing a scripture that tells me that human armies, perhaps several million strong armies, which consist of nuclear weapons, of uh, missiles like the Soviet SS-18, of cruise missiles and IRBMs and ICBMs with nuclear warheads, of long-range bombers, nuclear-powered submarines and aircraft carriers, of all sorts of missile launchers, and then we come down to the hand-carried weapons like the TOW anti-tank weapons and the laser weapons and the infrared sighting devices for nighttime sniping with the AK-47s and on and on. And these will make war with the Lamb. Now, how do you shoot an angel? How do you make war with the Lamb? The Lamb is described as Jesus Christ of Nazareth at the time of his second coming. Now, I try to create the scenario. How do they make war with the Lamb? Where do they point their weapons? What does it mean, make war with the Lamb? And what is the mentality of people who treated to the Great Tribulation the captivity of the Western democracies, the United States, Canada, South Africa, along with them, 
A terrible time of total economic collapse, the rise of despotism and dictatorships, a limited war, which will really be the opening rounds of World War III, which eventually will break out into nuclear bomb World War III between the Soviet Union and the United States of Europe. The Middle East will have been occupied. Millions will already have died. Major percentages of the populaces of the Western world will have perished. And at this time, following this tumultuous time to last perhaps two and a half years, or about half as long as World War II lasted, will come the heavenly signs. And everyone is going to be treated to the most mind-boggling display of heavenly phenomena, like hurtling asteroids and Halley's Comet multiplied by millions of times, the world seemingly bathed in a red blood light from a sun that has turned red and bloody colored like it was almost black as sackcloth of ashes at noonday. And after this time, when millions are going to fall down at their knees and cry out to God, and even military men are going to be saying, fall on us and hide us in the face of him that sits on the throne, will come the day of the Lord, and like one hammer blow after another, the pouring out of the seven last plagues followed, following the trumpet plagues, and then at that grand smash climax of 90-pound hailstones and fire running along the ground, the heavens are parted, and here comes this great avalanche of beings, led by a person on a white horse with a flaming sword and millions of angels looking like some invading horde from outer space. And they're going to fight all of this? They're going to turn their weapons on that phenomenon happening above their heads in the skies and try to resist it? How do they? And perhaps as importantly, why do they? What mind could try to turn a missile carrier, an automatic mobile missile launcher, and get his troops quick, aim at this thing, and shoot Christ coming from the heavens. But the Bible says that, doesn't it? I mean, I don't think angels are going to don military uniforms and run around and conduct trench warfare all of a sudden. I don't think the hosts of the heavens are going to show up carrying a lot of... Uh, a lot of ancient old bows or swords or spears or Roman short swords wearing helmets and challenge someone to a duel. They're not going to come on armored horses or dressed like the knights of William the Conqueror's day. It's going to be a phenomenal thing. To get a handle on how that could happen, let's go to the 13th chapter of Revelation and read a little bit about the beast power. Not only the physical military power, but also the system that is behind it, which is a spiritual organization, and learn a little bit about state or system worship. Chapter 13, verse 1, as I stood upon the sand of the sea, John says, he's seeing this in vision, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, symbolizing ten kings or nations, and upon his head the name of blasphemy. A name of blasphemy is any name which takes titles or offices that belong to God and put it on men and try to claim that they are actually the vicar, meaning standing in the place of Christ, the vicar of Christ, or very God, as it says in Second Thessalonians 2. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, so its bodily shape was leopard-like, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, the most powerful part of a bear, and his mouth is the mouth of a lion, and we think of a lion as having a huge head, the biggest head among all of the cat family. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And the dragon, according to verse 9 of the preceding chapter, is 
Satan the devil. So it embodies the strongest constituent parts of the four beasts of the seventh chapter of Daniel, which is the ancient Roman Empire. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and its deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon. Devil worship. Now, out-and-out out devil worship is rare in the world today. Down in Haiti, there are people who literally worship the devil. Over in San Francisco is a church of queers that is called the Church of Satan the Devil. They perform marriage ceremonies in open coffins with candles lit and actually incantations and various uh, uh, prayers to Satan the Devil himself, and they very proudly parade around as being the Church of Satan the Devil. It's a gimmick. And the U.S. Constitution absolutely guarantees them the same rights and privileges, including tax exemption, if you want to send them some money, that we have. But there are very few, very few snake handlers left in the Okefenokee swamps, and most people tend to think of devil worshippers as black voodoo witches in Haiti, or people who are animists or in far-off countries of Africa or something. They certainly don't think of a lot of Presbyterians, Methodists, Quakers, Good Baptists, Church of Christ, Catholics. And every now and then we are tempted because, you know, the Bible does enjoin upon us an attitude of tolerance, an attitude of understanding that we are to salute not only our brethren only. If we do that, what do we more than others? Do not the Pharisees the same? That we are to have not only a good report of them that are without, but to live peaceably with all men, as we were told in the sermonette. And so therefore, once in a while, the idea creeps into our thinking, well, just who is a Christian? I mean, I know an awful lot of people, and you do too, who wear those other church labels, who actually may be day in and day out a whole lot better people than we are. They may have better character. They may work harder. They may sacrifice more. They may have more of a feeling uh, for their brethren, they may be more active in their church organization than we are. So once in a while, someone will carry that several steps further, and they will begin to say, well, now, I don't know whether or not you can kind of uh, put all the Christians in a box, and you can say that all Christians who are members of the Church of God belong to just one Christian organization, and that as one Christian leader has said over the last several decades, Others are satanic counterfeits. And therefore, since we admit, given as the churches of God do admit, that there are members of what are called by one organization, the Sardis Church, who, quote, have not defiled their garments but shall walk with him in white, they are therefore admitting there are members of another political or church organization who are Christian. That makes members of two organizations who are Christian. They have had to admit, in a couple of other cases, that perhaps others who are not necessarily of a certain organization are Christian. Now, that opens the floodgates in some minds, and so they say, well, why not believe that among the Baptists there are many Christians? I mean, after all, what is a Christian? Now, my sermon today is not the process of elimination by which we prove the seven, and there are seven at least, if not more, absolute proofs of where are the true Christians, or of what and of whom is composed the Church of God, and I would give you a clue that certainly the process of elimination is very easier, very much easier, if you simply begin with the fourth commandment, 
because then you're looking at a very narrow group of people, meaning Sabbatarians, and anyone who believes that you can be a Christian and still break the Sabbath is either crazy or uninformed, but there is some area in there of just ignorance or misinformation or something that is a little bit wrong. But what I want to show you, and this is something that is well known by most of you, I think, is how this can happen, how people can actually worship Satan the devil. In 2 Corinthians 11, and I want to turn to this right quickly. There are a couple of them in 2 Corinthians 11, and I'll just refer quickly to some others. We learn that there are people who literally are worshiping, and perhaps worshiping in all sincerity and as well as they possibly can with all of the zeal they can muster, what they think is really Christ, an angel of light, of beauty, and of perfection. Paul is talking about those who he hopes would even be cut off. It's very, very interesting in, in what he says there, and you have to look into the commentaries to really understand it. He begins to say that there were others who were preaching another Jesus in verse 4, or another gospel, same verse. And though he is beginning to defend himself about being not a whip behind the chiefest apostles and a little rude in speech and so on, he still is urging them to compare and to find out who is right and who is wrong. He says in verse 12, what I do, that I will do, that I may cut off occasion from them, which desire occasion, because they were trying to provoke him, that wherein they glory, they may be found even as we are. For such are false apostles. Now, we know that the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 congratulate them for, quote, trying those who say they are apostles and are not, but have found that they are a synagogue of Satan. There are such people as false apostles. Yesterday I finished an article, I have the book in there, in which I took apart Mrs. E.G. White and her chapter, The Desolate Earth, in her famous book, The Great Controversy. There are a series of the most blatant and flagrant lying perversions and attempts at distorting scripture that you will ever see in your life. And all you've got to do is take The Great Controversy and turn to the chapter called The Desolate Earth, Read every word she says with your Bible, turn to every scripture she quotes, take out a red pencil and underline every scripture she omits. For example, in order to substantiate her theory of a desolate earth where it says, the earth is burned, comma, and few men left, period, she says the inhabitants of the earth are burned, period, in a quotation, Isaiah 24, 6. Puts a period where a comma is and does not include the words and few men left. That's one of the worst cases of tunnel vision I've ever run across in my life. The line right open before her, probably before typewriters were invented, her pad right there, she's writing, looking at the Bible, oh, I'd better not include that, because that would sort of sabotage my doctrine. So i got to leave those words out. Now, you know, some apostles or prophetesses are not necessarily honest. And there is quite a furor within the Seventh-day Adventist church right now because leaders in the Seventh-day Adventists are saying that she was a plagiarist and a false prophetess, and they are trying to revise the idea, you know, that Mrs. E.G. White is the prophetess toward whom the, the uh, Seventh-day Adventist church ought to look. So while you may think you've never met one, there are false apostles. I know of at least several who are dead, and it's easier to talk about those who are gone, perhaps, uh, because the fruits are there, the proofs are there, the writings are there, and it's all a closed chapter anyway. Deceitful workers transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. Now, you know the way the Indians got close to the deer and the elk and the way they snuck up on the buffalo? 
was to actually wear a deer or an elk skin or a buffalo hide with horns, and they would just slowly ease up on those animals, where they're very inefficient and very inaccurate, no matter what you swallowed as a kid, bows and arrows, in order to get to the range where they could kill those animals for food. And when a wolf is in sheep's clothing, he looks like a sheep. And the sheep don't know that that is a wolf in the midst of the flock, until all of a sudden, of course, the sheep's clothing is thrown off, and there is the wolf ready to devour, ready to devour the sheep. So when a false apostle transforms himself into the apostle of Christ, it's like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, and you don't really understand that this person is a false apostle. You think that he's a true apostle. And he says, and no marvel, no wonder, don't be puzzled at this. It's no phenomenon, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Now, how does Satan the devil appear to the world today? How would he appear to you if tomorrow, in some strange vision, and perish the thought, and let's pray it doesn't happen, Satan the devil himself appears at your bedside and says, Hi, how are you doing? How's he going to appear? Well, you'd re- immediately grab for your gun or your pitchfork, wouldn't you? Because standing in front of you would be either a dragon hissing with a huge forked tongue and flames coming out of his mouth, or probably a long, diabolically handsome, skinny kind of a guy that looked like he might come straight off a riverboat from a card shark game with a little waxed mustache, a little spade beard, a cute little red horns, and a funny-looking red body stocking with a long tail with a spear on the end of it, right? Wrapped all the way around him and draped over his arm. <laughs> I'm Satan the devil. And you'd say, get away, devil, and you'd start praying to God to get the devil away. Or would he? I've had a lot of people come to me and tell me about visions. And I have had no reason at all to just call them liars right out. Say, well, you're lying, you didn't have the vision." Because I think maybe they did have the vision. I had a guy come to me one time and tell me about this bright light standing at the foot of his bed. Woke him up. He had quite a conversation with this bright being. Next morning when he woke up, there was a cross. Indelibly imprinted, not, you know, in in ink, but I mean just pressed into the skin of his forehead. And it was so pressed in there that he actually went and had it photographed and he had a picture of it showed to me. I wasn't going to accuse the guy of lying for 14 hours on a piece of metal to press that in there and do it and have his picture taken and then come and try to con me. I suspected that that might have been so, but I wasn't about to accuse him of it. And so all I could do was to say, well, it must have happened. And then, since I know what I know about the Greek word stauros, and since I know the way God operates, and I do believe I know a little bit about the mind of God... And because what he said about the description of this being, he looked like the proverbial pictures on the gospel bookstore shelves of the petulant person with the brown locks and the spade beard and the far-off glaze stare in his eyes, and what he told him to do, and so on, I knew it couldn't be of God. So I cautioned him about it. But certainly, whatever it was that appeared to him, appeared in the guise of a righteous, bright, white being dressed in white linen who looked like what this person thought Christ ought to look like. Now, the way the world pictures Satan the devil is pretty universal. Throughout all of the Western Christian nations, they picture him as the one that I talked about with kind of looking like Neptune, you know, with the trident and the spade beard and the little horns and so on, cackling over departed spirits in hell. And the way they picture Christ is pretty universal. 
I am going to theorize, this is not dogma, merely a theory, I have believed it personally, but you don't have to, for many, many years, that when we finally see the real truth, we're going to see the personality that appears in pictures by the millions on people's walls looking like Jesus Christ is a fairly accurate rendering of the face of Satan the devil. Now, I may be wrong about that. It's just an opinion. But I think there's a fair guess that it tells me in the Bible that there is a counterfeit here. You know, a counterfeit is so good that in most cases you can spend it. A lot of bank clerks can't tell the difference. It takes an absolute expert to tell the difference. And sometimes it's got to go to the government experts who are actually in the mint, and some of them can be so absolutely expert you can't tell the difference. Question. If someone stole the original plates, I mean from the government mint, and then took them off and printed money, it's the original plates. They are identical, but it's unauthorized money. Is it still counterfeit? Answer, yeah, it's illegal, it's identical, and this time even the guy from the mint couldn't tell the difference, but it's still illegal. So the Bible plainly tells us we've got a problem on our hands here, because you of and by yourself are not capable of recognizing the difference, unless you're an expert, and unless you have expert help. No marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works, which is the very thing many of them preach against. The other day, I believe it was the third, was it not, anniversary of the Jim Jones debacle in Guyana, in Georgetown, or Jonestown. And his son appeared on, I believe it was Good Morning America, and even his own son knew when the transition took place and knew that originally Jim Jones started out as quite a dedicated, sincere dreamer, a person with very high and very good goals and purposes in mind, and that at some point in time, gradually, a change took place. And other people who have chronicled the story and understood how he started out and the very, very great drives that he had and the very high ideals and so on could say the same thing. I think sometimes people become self-deceived. I do not believe that Jim Jones, when he was back in his teens and twenties, decided someday I'm going to kill 900 people in the jungle in Guyana, and I'm going to commit suicide. He was screaming and yelling his head off. He didn't want to die. Why can't they let me alone? He felt persecuted and much put upon, and it was all everybody else's fault. The government was persecuting him and so on, and he could see in the Bible that they were going to persecute me, and then he came up with the bizarre idea of a mass suicide murder pact and, of course, had everybody drinking the poison. So when you study the minds of some of these people, you realize that not only can we, as laymen and lay people, be deceived by false religious leaders, but false religious leaders sometimes start out fairly, fairly right. And then they become self-deceived. Somehow they, they just drift away from what they originally started to do, and they become totally corrupt. And they have changed over the years, and they're completely different from what they used to be. So it is no great thing if his, Satan's, ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to the very thing that a lot of them preach against. Now back to the book of Revelation in the 13th chapter a little bit. It says in verse 4, and they worship the dragon. You probably, I don't know how many of you have been to the Louvre, or have you been to Elis Corial, or you've been to some of the big museums in Europe, the British Museum. 
some of them in some of the major capitals of Europe. And, of course, you know that the Renaissance was brought about mostly by church art. The Renaissance, the gradual awakening of a time of art, of literature, of, uh, of a certain amount of education, and kind of an, really the Renaissance meant like renewal or a renewing, and it was like an awakening from the Dark Ages. It was coming out of rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. Now, I've said for years that I believe the mark of the beast to be more economic than spiritual. I had thought for many years, and maybe there is still something to that, that the imposition of a universal calendar based upon a certain cycle which would eradicate any method of keeping track of the weekly Sabbath and would substitute an artificial Sunday in its place, and which would impose this, and I have wondered about the metric system and why the United States is beginning to put up dual road signs, why we want to adopt the method of Rome and of Europe instead of them adopt what we have, because we're still stronger than any of them at the present time. But anyway, you begin to wonder whether or not that universal calendar and the imposition of Sunday worship and doing away with any keeping track of Saturday, just destroying it by, uh, you know, a certain number of months of the year. It would be on a, like a Tuesday or a Thursday or a Friday or whatever. It would be on some insane calendar where you couldn't keep track of it. That is what I had for many, many years thought the mark of the beast may be. There's a beginning glimmer of information which makes you begin to wonder about the move toward a cashless society about the imposition of a universal government identity card, the plastic card, which you will be issued, and eventually, and some people are proposing this, now how far it's going to go, uh, whether it will actually go into the House or eventually be voted by Congress, I couldn't tell you. But you know, for purposes of being kept track of, uh, we know that the FBI has gigantic files of dozens of millions, I suppose hundreds of millions, of fingerprints in Washington, D.C., and that these can be cataloged. I used to lift fingerprints. Was I was in the Security Department. I've actually taken them and sent them into the FBI. All of the civilian employees had to be processed through an office in which I worked for my first uh, stint of duty in the Navy aboard a base just out of San Diego. And I learned a little bit about the way they catalog and, uh, you know, put these fingerprints in certain groupings and so on. So if they find even part of a fingerprint by the Tyler Police Department in a murder, they can zip that off to Washington, D.C., and they can simply look at it and, you know, catalog it according to certain groupings and types and interrogate a computer and come out with maybe a couple of hundred and just look at them and compare them. And if a person had a record there, and they do this every day, I mean, hundreds of clerks are doing that every single day for police departments and state police all over this country, and they can track you down. But what would be infallible, now, you know, you may look at it as an invasion of privacy every time they want to know what's your SS number, Social Security number, and you want to put that on an application for a job. You put it on your check. You want to cash your payroll check, they want to know your driver's license number and your Social Security number. That one number is the master number used by the computers in Washington to keep track of everything you ever wanted to know about somebody. My service record would be available through my Social Security number now as a person who had bowed to the Navy for many, many years. But now they're beginning to suggest that eventually they could produce a cashless society by the issuance of one of these plastic cards. But they go one step further because you might even be able to duplicate or counterfeit a plastic card. So they're toying with the idea now of an invisible ink 
tattoo on your forehead with a certain number of numbers. You would never see it. I mean, you might have yours on and I might have mine on, but you couldn't even see it right now. You could only see it under a certain, like an ultraviolet or some kind of a light. And they could shine this light on, there's your number. There's no way a crook could hide. Every human being, by the time a baby is a few days old, here comes the needle, you know. Put a number on the little guy. And for the rest of his life, he's hooked into a computer where wherever he goes, every time you buy, every time you sell, every time you move, if you buy ammunition for your pistol, that number has to be registered. Now, today, if I go buy ammunition in some states, they want my driver's license number. I ask them why. They say that's a state law. So, you see, if the anti-gun nuts have their way, and, you know, you probably didn't know that there was a giant furor in California, that California had an issue that was voted on November 2nd, had a referendum or whatever it's called, that the, the anti-gun nuts were going to put in, just like they did in a small town up in Illinois, mandatory registration and eventual confiscation of handguns in that state. It was, be, it was beaten, it was defeated by two to one, and nobody has heard a word about it. If it had gone in, it would have been the biggest news for weeks. You wonder who's running the press? For weeks they would have had giant headlines, you'd have been sitting around listening for 40 minutes at a time in the evening news and so on about this smashing victory for all the Greenpeace people and all of the conservationists and the people who don't want these rotten hunters running out, slaughtering everything in sight and so on. But it was resoundingly defeated by two to one and it hadn't even been reported. I haven't seen a whisper of it. Have you in the papers? Anybody hear about it? Did you? Well, good. I didn't even hear about it. I heard about it third hand from a friend when I was in hunting camp, but I didn't know how much publicity it was given. I'm beginning to wonder now, if we see something like that happening, and you say, no, I will not allow you to tattoo my forehead. Well, that's like right now, they're going to fight this draft business, and the government's not going to back down on it, and a judge has let a guy go, I believe out in San Diego, who refused to submit to a federal law of draft registration. Now, that's going to be interesting to look at that, because you see, if Congress passes a law that every man, woman, and child in this country has got to have an identification, a national identification card issued. And that card is plastic. And then to back up that card, your number stenciled on your forehead in invisible ink. I don't know. I think at that time I would be prepared to say, I think the mark of the beast is here. I think this is the meaning of it. I'm not saying that dogmatically now. I'm saying that those ideas are afoot. They are out there. People are talking about it. And I'm beginning to wonder, when it says, no man may buy or sell, that means you can't exist in a free society of commerce. You can't hold a job, you can't earn a wage, you can't buy your groceries, you can't sell your car. Unless you have something on your hand or your forehead. Either or, doesn't say both, your hand or your forehead. And it says, not just, the, notice this, Sabi had the mark, or, or, the name of the beast, or... The number of his name. Three separate things. A lot of people don't know you're dealing with three things. They think the mark of the beast, the number of his name, the name of the beast are all the same thing. No, they're not. The mark of the beast, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name, which is 666. So, let him that has understanding count the number of the beast. It is the number of a man, and his number is 600, three score and six, or 666. Now, back to my question at the beginning of the sermon. Why and how are people going to actually fight Jesus Christ at his coming? 
At that time, you're going to have a nation, a collection of nations in Europe, which are going to feel that they are absolutely invincible and are going to feel that the kingdom of God is already on the earth, that the vicar of Christ has prevented World War III, has moved the Vatican to Palestine, has negotiated a non-aggression pact and temporary peace between the United States of Europe and the Soviet Union. The hated Westerners are vanquished. They are slaves scattered all over the world. They're fragments of them. The Israelis are no longer extant as a nation. They are in Syria, and they're in Jordan, and they're in Egypt as household servants and as forced laborers. The United States is gone. Britain is gone. No longer do the empiric, do the, uh, uh, I should say not empirical, but the empire builders of the past of Britain and the United States no longer are they going to hold sway. They're going to be dancing in the streets. They're going to have bonfires. They're going to have rejoicing and shouting in the streets of European and other capitals around this world because they're going to be so happy when we go down. Now, I think, when I look at all the novels in the bookstores, especially in the science fiction area, when I look at all of the movies I'm seeing coming along, E.T. and Star Wars and Star Wars 2 and Star Wars 3 and Star Wars 10 and Star Wars 147, no doubt, and all the Buck Rogers types of things, and all the video games that are called Space Invaders and things shooting at each other. As I look at this, as I look at the tremendous interest in space travel in the American space program, the Soviet space program, at orbital satellites, at communication satellites, at satellite-destroying satellites with laser weapons that can shoot other satellites out of the skies, as I look at Hollywood writers trying to create a love affair between your helpless little children and a weird worm-like green little inchworm critter with huge eyes that's called E.T. who's supposed to be so sweet. I don't know. I've just seen the ads. I haven't seen the movie. But as I look at all of this, I'm beginning to realize there is like some giant dark conspiracy here to convince the minds of millions of people that when they see the heavenly signs... And when they see the actual return of Jesus Christ, they're going to think it is an invasion from outer space, or they're going to think it is an invasion from space, from a foreign power on the earth, but they're not going to believe it is actually the return of Jesus Christ. And they're going to be deceived. And so I read that now, these ten nations are going to fight Jesus Christ that is coming. And I say, well, of course. Because they don't know they're fighting Jesus Christ. They're not saying, that's Christ returning, let's get him. They're saying Christ is sitting on the Holy See over there in Rome or in Jerusalem, and that is the Antichrist, let's get him. And so the millions are going to be deceived into believing that the second coming of Christ is an invasion by Satan or an invasion from some other nation from afar using space weapons and space platforms and space satellites and so on. And that is the way it is going to happen. The only way I can understand that is to see, in looking back, that in my lifetime, as a boy growing up, I saw a whole nation, not just one nation, but many, certainly Germany, Italy, and Japan, and other nations that fell into their orbit, skillfully, cleverly manipulated. Nations of impoverished, starving people, Nations of beleaguered people who felt victimized by the terms and conditions of the Treaty of Versailles. A nation that was partitioned by the Danzig Corridor. 
a nation that had stripped from her the coal fields of the Tsar, a nation whose populaces were in the Sudetenlands, Czechoslovakia, Poland, and it spread throughout much of Europe, including the Saar Valley, which devolves from France down toward the Ruhr Valley along the Rhine River into Germany. A leader emerged who, through playing upon feelings of guilt, of fear, of poverty, of repression, of economic deprivation, of national humiliation, a people desperately in need of a new direction, a people impoverished and desperately in need of three square meals a day and a good job and some security and some kind of a future. A nation at that time, as shocking as it may sound, that was in a morass of crime, of confusion, of chaos and disorder. There were dozens of violent gangs. There were acts that were despicable against the populace of the German people. They were emerging from a deep depression. People were starving to death. People were being murdered. There was chaos in the streets. Emerging from this chaos was a man named Adolf Hitler who talked about putting everything together into one. And his cry was, Ein Volk, Ein Reich, Ein Führer. And of course, repeating these slogans endlessly over those years welded the people of Germany together in the name of the Führer wherein millions upon millions of human beings absolved themselves of personal responsibility, and they gave their hearts to the state, they gave their conscience to a false Christ, and they said, whatever he does, he only is responsible before God, and I am responsible to him. It was subtle at first, but it was needed because it was the only way to create order out of chaos. The sycophants around Hitler used Hitler's name. The snappier your Heil Hitler salute, the more loyalty to der Fuhrer, the more rapid your climb through the hierarchy. If you could give a speech in which you could mention the name of der Fuhrer about 137 times, and maybe the name of God once in passing, your future was absolutely assured especially if it came to the attention of the Fuhrer. And you know, it was unbelievable that even after that man was insane and was ordering non-existent armies to non-existent fronts, even after the attack that was made upon him, and many generals, including Rommel, who was complicit, who was given the cyanide pill and told, or whatever it was, I think he went upstairs and blew his brains out, but whatever he did, was offered the idea, while the man paced up and down in the leather greatcoat outside waiting to hear the shot, and let Rommel kill himself, all of the generals that were complicit in trying to kill Hitler, the other generals, because of their own desire to succeed him, Keitel and all the rest of them, rallied around this insane man. He, he invited the ego massage. He invited sycophancy. He, he, he doted on it. He had to have it. And that's the way with military despots. I'm looking right now, I'm wondering, you know, I still am not going to give up on the idea, and it's just an idea, but I wonder why God worked it in such a way that I had an opportunity to meet him and be with him and fly him around on the airplane, and that, that is Franz Josef Strauss, as to whether or not he is going to become the strong leader who will lead Germany out of the coming economic collapse. 
And I'm not sure now that the United States is going to have three or four or five nice good years of coming out of the economic morass and have some real good boom years again before another collapse comes. Because as you look at the international banking systems, as you look at many, many major nations about to default on giant billion-dollar loans, the international banking system is in deep trouble. And there are nations all over this world, the impoverished nations with runaway 152, 300% inflation, like Argentina. They're absolutely bankrupt as a result of the Falklands Island War. Brazil, absolutely bankrupt, down the chutes. Most of the Central and South American countries are bankrupt countries with huge debts in the IMF and other international banking fraternities they're never going to be able to pay. India, balance of payments deficits absolutely roaring out of control as a direct result of the fuel increases, of course, and they have to import everything. So we're going to look for that and to see an economic collapse, and an economic collapse is going to bring poverty, and poverty is going to bring dramatic changes in government. And in those countries, in Europe and Japan, you're going to see a screeching 90-degree turn to the right, the emergence of a military dictatorship in Japan, the emergence of a military dictatorship in Germany. You're going to see Japan once again build very quickly, and it will happen in two to three years the mightiest navy by several times that the world has ever seen. At the present time, Russia has something like, I think it is 11 million men under arms. The United States has something like 850,000. In less than one year after 1945, we sent hundreds and hundreds of ships into mothballs, and we took approximately 8 million men under arms and put them back in the job market until we had something like 750 or 850,000 men in all of the services by 1946. So we weren't ready for Korea when it came. <clears throat> and in 1950, when the communist North Koreans walked into South Korea, we had to call up reservists to try to fight that war. I believe, and it's my belief that in spite of all that Reagan is trying to do, because I happen to know that the Abrams tank stuck in reverse, I happen to know that its gun control platforms and all of its uh, marvelous devices are so absolutely complex that it takes a skilled technician to operate it. It is a gas guzzler. It's nowhere near as good as a German tank. I don't know why we just don't take a German tank and copy it, but for some reason American industry won't do that. Our aircraft are not necessarily superior to those of potential enemies. Our ships are not superior. They're aging, and they don't have the crews to man them. We are under strength in spite of all that you hear about a big military buildup. Most of that money is going into such things as the Pershing II. And if you saw the news reports the other day and watched it go up and fizzle out like an effective sparkler on 4th of July, what a black eye that was to the Army when they're supposed to be thinking about deploying that thing. And did you hear what the Germans are saying about it? Germans don't want it. The Germans don't want the Pershing II on their soil, and the word in our news is the Reagan government's going to put it over there whether the Germans like it or not. What's that going to do to U.S.-German relations? And, of course, that's just the ongoing trade-off in the attempt to make the new leader in the Soviet Union have something to bring to the bargaining table, and maybe they can step back in the development of cruise missiles or the SS-18s or something else if we say, well, we won't deploy a defective, we won't say it that way, uh, intermediate-range uh, ballistic missile in German soil. So I really believe that we're an awful lot closer to the development of some of these things than I think. But as I look at this scripture and see this great nation, conglomeration rather of ten nations, actually fighting Jesus Christ that is coming, I've got to go back and ask, how can that happen? How does that develop? 
Let's look at the 18th chapter quickly and the 19th to close. In the 18th chapter is a picture of the destruction, and I believe by the Soviet Union in a nuclear bomb war, of the United States of Europe. It says, after the warning that his people are to come out of her, notice in verse 8, her plague shall come in one day. Now that seems to me to be a sudden lightning attack. Maybe it doesn't mean one day the way we count time, but it may be literally one day. Death and mourning and famine, she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. And the kings of the earth, it's a multinational conglomerate, who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her, shall bewail her and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning. This is Babylon the Great. This is that ten-nation union, verse 12 of chapter 17, ten kings that have one mind and give their power and strength to the beast, in verse 13, called Babylon the Great, the military conglomeration. When they see the smoke of her burning, they'll lament and bewail her, standing afar off, verse 10 of chapter 18, for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon. You know, ancient Babylon was destroyed back in about 538, 539 B.C. It's rubble today. The great city that is Babylon is Rome and is symbolic of this union that is coming. That mighty city, for in one hour is your judgment come, and the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her. You see, it is a giant economic union, a giant merchandising system. The merchandise, gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, linen, purple, silk, scarlet, thine wood, and all manner of vessels of ivory. And it lists all of the type of things that were used in trade in those days. But also in verse 13, notice slaves and souls, meaning suke or lives, of men, meaning human beings, a slave trade, a lively slave trade is coming back, and bartering in human lives will have been taking place. And it mentions all of these things. Verse 15, The merchants of these things which were made rich by her shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing. And that is figurative language, of course, metaphorical language. They cast dust on their heads, verse 19. And it describes it all in verse 21 and 2. Now toward the end of the 19th chapter, and it follows right along as this great union is completely destroyed, those seven last plagues are poured out, and Jesus Christ actually does come. Chapter 19 and verse 11, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. Now that is a scripture that most of the churches won't preach and won't teach, because they don't believe in a war-making Christ, that the only way to put down all of this despotism and militarism and these machines of war is to crush the nations that have built them. And Christ is coming not to preach quietly to them or to ask them, won't you believe on me or won't you give your heart to the Lord? He's coming to put them to death. His eyes were as a flame of fire. It describes him clothed in blood, called the word of God, armies in fine linen, white and clean, verse 14, a figurative sharp sword out of his mouth that he should smite the nations, verse 15. His name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now notice finally, verse 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies, this is where we began in chapter 17, gather together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army, and the beast was taken. Now when Christ arrives, and it says in Zechariah 14:4, in that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives, he is going to literally take this one individual, 
who is the military dictator over the ten, and with him the false prophet that I believe to be the Pope, that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image, these both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. Now, if you haven't yet read, you might even want to get a copy today, the new brochure, Are There Immortal Worms in Hell? It goes through the meaning of every single one of the Greek words having to do, and the Hebrew words having to do with Sheol, or with Gehenna, or with Hades, or with Tartaru in the Bible about hell, and expounds and explains the entire subject about whether or not Isaiah 66, where their worm dieth not, means that worms crawl in and out of people as they're writhing in hell fire. And you will read about the Valley of Hinnom, Gehinnom, as it was called, where the other day, as a matter of fact, we had to destroy some trash, and a little town up in Colorado had a very uh, antiquated dump, and they had fires burning there, and we simply tossed the trash on the fires. Well, anciently, they had a very precipitous cliff there over which they simply shoved the bodies of, of dogs that had died or criminals who were stoned to death or crucified or whatever, and they shoved rubble and refuse and wood, and, of course, these fires just fed continually. They just smoked, and it was very unsanitary, but it was a perpetual burning dump. And so the valley of Gehenna, or Hinnom, became, in Christ's characterization, he used it as a type, a type of the coming Gehenna fire. And apparently those fires are going to begin burning at the very coming of Christ and will be burning throughout the millennium as a symbol. And those who are rebellious and will not repent and will not obey the government of God are literally going to be cast over into that burning abyss and there they will die. If you read carefully, the story of the Prince of Tyre, and also in the, you know, the 14th of Isaiah and the 28th of Ezekiel, you will see how they look narrowly upon the man that did deceive the nations and say, is this the man that made the nations to tremble? And you get the picture that even though he's going to die by the fumes, his body will not immediately be consumed, and that horrifying specter of a bloated body being eaten by maggots is actually going to occur to these two vaunted leaders of this coming conglomerate in Europe. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon his horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. And that is the closing of the scene of the second coming of Christ. The only way I can understand that some union of nations with military weapons like missiles and ships and tanks and planes and guns are going to actually try to fight Jesus Christ at his second coming is because they don't believe it is Christ, but believe it is the Antichrist and are completely deceived. I hope that gives you a little bit of insight into the some possibilities of the immediate future, not the least of which is this very striking idea about the possibility of the mark of the beast that is going to come. 